Uh, good morning, everybody. Glad to see that you are the tough crew that made it through the treacherous snow. I know that uh, this morning I woke up at a regular time, 3.15. I woke up at 3.15 because I, I knew that I wanted to get here early, make sure that you know, we had the doors cleared and the paths were all you know, shoveled and snowblown and all that. But then when I walked out into my driveway, I realized that I myself had eight inches of snow out there. So I spent the first hour clearing the way so that I could get out and that my wife could get out after me. So again, I, I know that some of you probably put up with that this morning. Really appreciate you um, doing that and making it out to be with us here this morning. Um, if you received the weekend update yesterday, you'll notice that there was quite the, the list of things on there. First off, Green Lake registration is open. We did have our first registration sitting right in the back over there. Miss Wojewoda is officially on the way to Green Lake, um, which is really exciting. So you go ahead and get signed up for that. Um, we also have an opportunity, if you, if you would like to, to sponsor a student, we know that we've had some families this year deal with tough time, job loss, things like that. If you'd like to sponsor a student, uh, you can let me know about that. We've had people do that in the past, and it's been a really, really cool opportunity to, uh, to help a kid go to camp. Second thing on the list is Captain, I have to read it because I'm going to mess it up, Captain Bittigan and the Castaway Fisherman. On April 17th and 18th, the Southfield kids are going to do another performance for us. I'm really excited about it. We had the Christmas play, um, the Christmas show, and now we're having another one here in the spring. Dana and her team are putting together a really cool thing uh, where, <clears throat> where we're going to learn about Jesus, and it's all going to come through the lens of Captain Bittigan and the Castaway Fisherman. Uh, you do need to uh, register for that. If, if you're a Southfield kid who wants to be a part of that, registration is on the website or through the links, or you can sign up through the app. Any way is fine, uh, but we do need to make sure that you are registered by February 16th, which is crazy, but it's right around the corner. Um, third on the list, we have... Suffering is Never for Nothing. This is a book by Elizabeth Elliot, and the, the neat thing that we're doing with this is it's an opportunity for, for women to get together. Um, after having read the book, so you go on either the links, the website, or the app, register for Suffering is Never for Nothing, and then on March 13th from 10 to 1, every woman who signed up for the group is going to have the opportunity to come together in a book club style discussion about the book and kind of what, they've, what you guys have learned and, and spend time uh, together in fellowship on, on that day. So really neat opportunity. We've never done anything like that before. Um, so definitely dive in. Uh, you can find the book and everything on the links or through, through the app or through the website for that. Our annual meeting is happening this week. When the original date was proposed to me, it, they said, uh, how does February 7th look? And I was like, February 7th, that sounds like a date that isn't going to work, but I can't understand why. And then the time was proposed, and it was February 7th at 6 p.m., and I was like, February 7th, 6 p.m., that's the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl. And I was like, yeah, you probably aren't going to get too many people show up uh, if we're fighting Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. So we moved it. It's this Thursday from, or it's at 6 o'clock. We have childcare available, and we're also going to have an opportunity to eat together. We're having some chili. So if you'd like to come learn about 
life as a Southfielder and the state of kind of things at the church in a business sense and, and how we're doing overall in our ministries, you can join us this Thursday at 6 p.m. and come hungry. Uh, the, the last thing on there you saw were the snow plans, and I appreciate you just having the trust that we were open. I don't know if any of you actually checked the website to see, uh, but we were contemplating, like, do we send a message? Should we, you know, send it out? So you guys got it, and you are officially, um, I, I know that my dad, who's in 60-degree weather in Colorado right now, no snow at all, uh, he would be very proud of you Buffalo blood elite. <laughs> all right. Uh, Avery, if you'd flip over to the sermon slides, appreciate that. We've been going through this series called 21. 21, uh, it's not just a random number. We've been doing a fast along with that for three weeks. And the end of the fast is here. I'm so excited. It's time to feast. If you're anything like me, you've been thinking about this day since day one. The fast started, and you're like, when's the feast? When do I get to stop this? When is it all over? Uh, we finally get to stop pushing away the candy. I know that uh, yesterday in the, the update, the final update for the 21-day journal, uh, my dad made the joke that uh, since my sister gave up chocolate, and many other people did as well, that the shelves of Jewel and Walmart alike are going to be completely void of chocolate, much like the toilet paper crisis of 2020. So uh, make sure, if, as soon as service is over, run over, grab your chocolate before uh, my sister is able to get over there and buy it all. All right, let's get serious. The fast is over, so, so now what? Now what? Well, now we move into this weird quasi-middle ground. The liturgical church calendar plots out the year from the first Sunday of Lent all the way until the next Lent. So it doesn't start January 1, go to December 31st. It goes from whatever the date, or the first date of Lent, the first Sunday of Lent, until the next Lent. We are not a liturgical church. We don't follow that tradition. Um, although we do participate in the feasts and the, um, the fasts of those seasons. The feasts would be Christmas and Easter. The fasts attached uh, would be Advent and Lent. The feasts have, have prep, seasons of preparation that involve the fast. So you fast up until the feast, but then in between these seasons, it's what we're calling living in the ordinary. This past week, in seventh grade social studies, I have had an absolute blast. I've been able to teach financial literacy to seventh graders. We've been playing this thing called the game of life. And no, it's not the board game. We haven't just been playing board games the whole time, okay? Um, the game of life is the brainchild of my predecessor that I've been feeding, and feeding probably to an unhealthy level. First, the kids choose their dream job. Whatever their dream job is, uh, they, they get to choose it. Now, many kids chose athlete, and then I said, well, you don't get to choose, like, the top-tier salary. You have to go with, like, the minor league salary because no guarantee of the majors. And once they saw, they're like, $22,000, I'm becoming a doctor. We had a lot of athletes switch over to uh, the medical field. It was amazing. So they choose their dream job, and then I walk them through, step by step, what it would require to achieve that dream job. They make decisions along the way. So the first thing they have to figure out is, do they need to go to college? What level of education is required for your job? If you're a Starbucks, or as I like to call it, five bucks, barista, then you don't need a high school education. You could drop out and work at Starbucks forever, but you don't want to do that, right? Um, if you want to be a, 
a carpenter, you don't need to go to college. You could go into the trades, um, and you could get an apprenticeship. So we walk through all the different stages, kind of weighing costs and benefits of their different choices. They get to, when they get to the college choice, they get to choose in-state, out-of-state, public, private. And then I, in this disgustingly full spreadsheet, have entered a bunch of formulas, and based on their decisions, I plug everything in, and they get to see the effects of their decisions. Once they get five years out, we have them buy a house, and they buy a car, because you don't want to live at mom's house, and you don't want to live in a dumpy studio apartment anymore, right? So they get to choose from a huge selection of houses and homes, but then some of them have to take out loans, and we teach them about interest rates. This last week, it was really exciting because we started a stock market simulation. We were teaching about, teaching about uh, long-term financial um, security. So we, I taught them about um, mutual funds, IRAs, 401ks, and stocks. We started this stock market simulation on Tuesday. I showed them, I got them all signed up on Monday, and I thought I was going to be like just the grandmaster genius of this whole thing. Because on Monday, I was really into the meme stock thing. Not in terms of my real money, uh, but I was all over GameStop, AMC, Nokia, all the meme stocks that the Reddit users you know, were, were blowing up. I'm not going to explain the whole situation because it'll bore you to death. But I was in. And I was counting on making massive gains. We give each kid $100,000, their Uncle Rico leaves them $100,000 uh, to invest in the stock market. And I teach them, you don't want to invest it all right away. You kind of want to play it out. And you know, you, these stocks are meant to play long term. Well, I was day trading $100,000 on Monday, and I lost 36000 bucks. So now, poor old Mr. Pap has to fight his way back because the meme stocks, with everything getting shut down on Robinhood, kind of killed my, uh, my opportunity for a quick score. I need a rally because um, now I'm in 161st place out of 161 people. Tough to teach kids when you're at the bottom. Anyway, uh, it's been a lot of fun. The game's wildly complex, but it's, it's all good. Anyway, the focal point of this entire unit really revolves around one question. Can I differentiate between a need and a want? Can I budget for my needs before I budget for my wants? What is a need? What is a want? Throughout the course of an ordinary day, we face this question dozens, if not hundreds, of times. Let's walk through a few examples. Want or need? The alarm clock goes off, and you roll over thinking about more sleep. Want or need? Coffee. Some of us are not pleasant in the morning, especially if we choose not to get the extra sleep. So, coffee, is it going to come from home? where we drink a whole pot? Will we go to Dunkin' or will we stop at five bucks? When we get to work or when we get to the store or whatever we're starting our day with, are we, gonna find, we need to find the closest parking spot. If you've got to walk through this mess, you're just going to be miserable. You, you might die. Well, then comes the human interaction, whether it is at the store or work. And, and right now, a lot of us are masked up and, and avoiding human interaction. We don't want to talk to people because if I have to talk to somebody else, well, then somebody else might die. Chocolate, chips, maybe that glass of wine. I, I need it to feel good, right? Eh, or is it just a want? Overtime, 
I need the cash, or my boss needs me. Is that really true? And finally, elections. I need this person to win, or else the world will fall apart forever. As you know, during the fast, I spent time away from noise in the places that are not normally void of noise. The car, the shower, my office after work when I'm still in the presence of others, and so on. 22 short days ago, I would have told you that all of that noise in the ordinary was absolutely essential. And my excuses would have been far-reaching. I need to stay calm in traffic. So, a little Dave Matthews band for 45 minutes. I need it. Uh, I, I can't get any work done if I'm in this shared workspace and people are talking to me. So I need to pop my headphones in and just hunker down on what I've got to do. I would have given you a gambit of excuses. Since that time, though, just 22 short days ago, I truly believe that I have been broken. I spent that newly quiet open time doing some evaluating of my priorities. Telling myself that I needed the noise was a lie that I was using to justify my behaviors. Sometimes we think these excuses are cute. You know, I, I need my coffee or I'll rig your neck. Yeah. But when they become habitual they can become outright sinful. Truthfully, we need very little. In Luke chapter 19, we hear about a wee little man named Zacchaeus who lives in Jericho. Let's start with a little background. Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of, um, of Jerusalem. It's near the Jordan River. It's known as one of the oldest inhabited cities ever in the entire world. Yes, we're talking about the same Jericho that Jeremiah and the Israelites, or Joshua and the Israelites, um, conquered and you know knocked the walls down. The whole works, okay? Same Jericho, same place. Um, but this is about fourteen hundred years later. So the walls come down with Joshua and the Israelites. Fourteen hundred years later, jo- uh, Jesus is around and he's making a pass through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem uh, for essentially what would become the end of his life. At the time of Jesus. Jericho was known as a Roman oasis city. It's the getaway spot. Herod the Great built his winter palace near here because of its warm climate and its freshwater springs. Because Jericho catered to the rich and the powerful during the time of Jesus, homeless outcasts would often line the roads leading up to the city because it was a good place to encounter well-to-do people who would offer um, offer their spare change to the beggars or uh, political elites who they could try and sway to, to earn help or people traveling along who they could rob from. At the end of Luke 18, Jesus heals a blind man on his way into Jericho. Jesus' entrance would have been enough to stir up a crowd. He's at the end of his ministry. He's 33 years old. People knew where Jesus was. If, you know, at Christmas time how you show uh, kids the Santa tracker. They didn't have that advanced technology back then, but if they did, they would have had a Jesus tracker, and they constantly would have been following uh, the, the, the beacon that Jesus was, uh, where he was on the map. So Jesus alone would have been enough to stir up a crowd, let alone now that there's this blind man who's been sitting outside Jericho for a while, coming in and saying, I've been healed! This man, it's a miracle! He must be the Messiah! You can imagine that that would have stirred even more uh, of a commotion 
during this visit. According to verses 3 and 4, Zacchaeus, who's the very rich chief tax collector of Jericho, tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed the synagogue, or sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. I see this in us. This is too much like us, in fact. Except replace the rich tax collector with hardworking mom, or busy dad, or stressed out student. We know that when we have a chance to encounter Jesus, we scramble to get a glimpse of him. That's why you fought the snow and you're here this morning, or you're watching online. Regardless of how your week went, regardless of the status of your relationships, whatever is going on in your life, you want a glimpse of Jesus. You want the opportunity to reset with him. No matter what you've said, done, or thought this week, Sunday morning services bring an opportunity to, be, to feel close to Jesus. Starting verse 5, we read that when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. The people were displeased. He's gone to be a guest in the house of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home this day. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. To me, the fast felt a lot like Zacchaeus' interaction with Jesus. At the beginning, I just wanted to see Jesus in it. Um, I, I, then I wanted to see if he'd do anything in the silence. Among my racing thoughts that I shared about a few weeks ago, I had, I had some legitimate questions that, were, that would go through my head. Would I get to see Jesus up close? Or, or am I like Zacchaeus too short? Would he notice that I'm doing anything different? I'm fasting. I'm up in this tree. Would sitting quietly be enough? Can I be changed in such a short time like Zacchaeus? By day four of the fast, Jesus had called me by name. Now, I'm not saying that he audibly, Brian, no. But I, I knew he called me by name. I realized hard and fast that he wanted to be a guest in the special places that I had consciously squeezed him out of because of my needs. Zacchaeus previously had a greed-soaked need for money. Jesus changed that in an instant. But what good would it have been if Zacchaeus just went back to living the same old way he had always been living? Change is good. Lasting change is better. So today we break our fast with a feast, and we begin our travel back into the ordinary. It's imperative that we take the lessons of the feast and the fast into normal life where the majority of life is lived. On day 20 of the guide, uh, my dad shared that a good look at the calendar reveals the majority of the year is neither feast nor fast. It's referred to as ordinary time. The majority of church life is lived in ordinary time. The majority of our spiritual journey is traversed in the ordinary. Ordinary actually makes the feast and the fast extraordinary. If every day was a feast, we'd soon be bored with the excess 
If every single day were a fast, we'd wither away and starve. Feasts and fasts teach us how to live out the ordinary. So since we've, feasted, or since we've fasted and feasted, or if you're like me, you're holding off until this afternoon. I didn't listen to music on the way in. Drive me, drive me crazy. Okay, uh, but I will feast today. How do we live out the ordinary? What does that look like? The way that I see it, we need three things to be successful in this pursuit. And I truly mean need. The first is courage. To fast is a courageous act. Take it easy, though, Clark Kent. It doesn't make you a superhero or anything any more special than anybody else. Quite the opposite. Fasting breaks your dependence on you. Fasting teaches us that we are reliant on something other than ourselves for survival, and that something is a someone, and that someone is God. Many of us would like to be close to Jesus and have him take more control of our life. We say it a lot, but we face many obstacles. The world wants to offer quick fixes to these obstacles. And we see them as we walk through the checkout aisle all the time. Here we've got Taylor Swift telling us that we've got a magic number, the 15-minute workout. That's all it takes, 15 minutes, and you'll look like T-Sweezy. Mark Wahlberg up here got the number one fat-frying secret. He's even got tips to never get sick. How did he figure that out, and why hasn't this been all over the news? Christina Aguilera wants to show you 10 simple tips to make your whole house healthier and 12 quick and sexy hair ideas. Finally, Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer of all time. You can play just like him. Longer drives, straighter irons, purer putts, better bunker play if you just read the magazine and follow the advice. Quick fixes don't take courage. And they often don't work. In the ordinary, we will encounter struggles and problems. I struggle with my golf game, okay? Our weaknesses, brokenness, difficulties, and fears can cause us to look beyond ourselves to, for answers. Facing difficulties can draw us closer to God or it can make us feel farther away from Him. We turn to God and pray for solutions, corrections, guidance, and more. But sometimes when we don't see the results we are looking for, it causes us to wonder if God is even listening or if he cares at all. We don't trust that he's able to do anything about our situation, and that frustration can lead to distrust. Courage comes in the decision to get closer to Jesus so he can move our mountains. In high school, uh, I, I did really well. Okay? I graduated um, 16th in my class, so I was good at school. I'm not saying that I was the smartest kid out there. I promise you. I'm not the smartest person. Okay? Uh, at best, I'm 16th in my own high school class. But anyway, uh, I was just good at school. I knew what the teachers wanted, and I gave it to them. Okay? So the one class that that did not work in was AP Physics. AP Physics gave me a brutal beatdown from day one. All of the non-studying habits and the Late night hours, you know, not starting homework until 11.30, 11.45, they all caught up to me in the first few weeks of AP Physics. I was drained. I couldn't figure any of it out. I kept being told, look for the patterns. Everything in this class is a pattern, and it's a chain of events, and this, that, the other thing, and I could never figure it out. 
One simple idea that I do remember that sticks with me to this day is this. This is a lever. It's one of the oldest inventions, and it has three simple parts. The load, the arm, and the fulcrum. The load is that red square up there. The fulcrum, obviously, is the green triangle. And the arm is the, what they call here the beam. Okay? The fulcrum gives leverage to help us move something that we cannot move on our own. There are two ends of the arm. We have the load end and the effort end. Without a fulcrum, we're not going to be able to move this load. When I slide a fulcrum in, I get leverage that I don't have on my own. You can imagine if that beam or that arm was laying on the ground without a fulcrum and I have to move that load, imagine it's an elephant. I'm not going to be able to do it. Okay? I might not even be able to do it with a fulcrum. Uh, but you get the point. If it's flat on the ground, it's going to be a lot harder to move than it would be without, with a fulcrum. God is our fulcrum, and we need to invite him in. The problem is that in the ordinary, we only invite him in a little bit. We've pushed him all the way to the effort end. And what does that do? Not much. We might say things like, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Uh, but the answer that you hear most often from someone who has their fulcrum all the way on the effort side is, I'm fine. It's all good. Everything's sunshine and rainbows. God's saying, though, no, you're not fine, and I know it. I want to help you with your marriage. I want to help repair that relationship with your parents or your child. Let me get into your finances. Let me get into your life and allow me to do some work. While we fast, we recognize that need more than any other time. We recognize our need for God and we recognize how powerful he is and just all that he can do. Don't forget about his power in the ordinary. Move the fulcrum. Move the fulcrum. Have the courage to make fast-like decisions. Say no to things once in a while. Be patient. Wait for what God has in store as you push that fulcrum more towards the load, making the effort easier. The musical Hamilton hit Broadway in 2015 and it was an immediate success. Riley loved the music pretty much instantly, and she would listen to it nonstop. Uh, there's a song called Nonstop. And that was, sorry. I love my wife dearly, uh, but God did not give her the musical talent that matches her enthusiasm for music. She regularly skips words because she doesn't remember them, or she mumbles or sings out of tune, but she doesn't care. She belts it out anyway, and that is something that I truly love about my wife. She listened to the soundtrack for Hamilton so often, though, that she actually knew all the words. I was blown away that this had captured her attention so effectively that she was able to learn every word and skip over the bad ones. Inevitably, when the show was in Chicago, Riley went. Two times. Without Brian. <laughs> I wasn't into it. I claimed that there were too many historical inaccuracies to uh, justify going and paying that kind of money for a show. Uh, and I, I, I also, like, hip-hop, rap, I don't know. I'm 
from Anuka. I'm a, I'm a country kid, okay? I like, I like my country. Is that so wrong? I just keep, keep it, keep it, okay? Well, last spring, Disney Plus put Hamilton on their platform. I fell in love. I've watched it five times, okay? Hard to follow at first, though. I would pause. I probably paused about 100 times the first time. And I'd ask my expert, who's that? What are they doing? Because I'm a history major. I know who these people are in real life, but they didn't have the, uh, the white wigs that I was accustomed to seeing in all my history books. So who's that? Who's that? Who's that? Oh, and it all started to make sense she, because she would answer with perfect clarity. As the plot thickens, there's a song called Wait For It. It delineates the story of Aaron Burr's jealousy of Alexander Hamilton. You see, Hamilton was amidst a meteoric rise to power. He started from nothing. And he was shooting up the ranks without doing it the way that you're supposed to. That really frustrated Aaron Burr to the point where he hated Alexander Hamilton. The song I, I can't play because if I played it, then the audio would go out for the people at home. Copyright, okay? And I'm not going to sing it because my musical enthusiasm matches my talent even less than my wife, okay? Uh, Shelly stole it all. Um, (laughs) So I'm just going to read you the last eight lines of this song called Wait For It. And again, this is from the perspective of Aaron Burr. Hamilton doesn't hesitate. He exhibits no restraint. He takes and he takes and he takes and he takes. He keeps winning anyway. He changes the game. He plays and he raises the stakes. If there's a reason that he seems to thrive when so few survive, then I'm willing to wait for it. Life doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and it takes and we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason that I'm still alive when so many have died, then I'm willing to wait for it. It takes courage to wait around while the people around you appear to succeed in the ordinary without God. But be courageous. Trust the fulcrum. Spoilies, Aaron Burr ultimately did not wait for it. He shot Alexander Hamilton dead. Uh, So, sorry. Um, But anyway, (laughs) the first thing we need is courage. The second thing we need is conviction. And today I think that there is truly a lack of clarity in defining what a conviction is. Some people confuse opinions with convictions. Opinions are views or judgments formed about something that aren't necessarily based in fact or knowledge. Nolan Arenado is the newest member of the St. Louis Cardinals. Yes, I had to get that in there. I think Nolan Arenado makes the Cardinals the best team in the National League. Opinion. I think it's going to keep snowing all day long. Opinion. Opinions are gut feelings, and they can feel very strong, very intense. The problem is that sometimes our gut lies. I don't think eating Taco Bell before a three-hour Zoom meeting is that bad of an idea. Terrible idea. Not personal experience or anything. (laughs) Others confuse beliefs with convictions. A, A belief is an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. I believe that baseball is still America's pastime. Belief. I believe that it's difficult to predict the weather. Belief. Beliefs are important because they truly are the foundation for our lives, especially our spiritual lives. 
But a conviction goes farther. It's a firmly held, stable, long-term belief. And my belief in God is a conviction. When a belief becomes a conviction, it wholly impacts my thoughts, my words, and my actions. What does a biblical conviction look like? If you're convicted that God is real, that he is in control, that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he's done, and that he will do what he says he will, and that he does want that relationship with you, then you'll be a reflection of many of the Psalms. Two examples include Psalm 104, 33. I will praise the Lord as long as I live, and I will sing praises to my God until my dying breath. That's a conviction. Psalm 116, 2. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Doing something until your last breath is conviction. If the fundamental truths, truths connected to biblical fasting aren't a conviction, then you're not going to live them out in the ordinary. Your singing voice will go silent and your praying knees will grow stiff. Paul understood conviction. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin then I will never eat meat again for as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. We can come up with our own examples. I mean, think about it. Paul probably loved meat, right? But he's not going to eat it if it causes another believer to stumble. He literally says that he'll give it up forever. Not just 21 days. Forever. That is conviction. I'm a very sarcastic person. It's my sense of humor. I love it. But I also know that there are people that can't keep up with that the level of sarcasm that I go with. And that sarcasm, while it's fun for me, can end up hurting someone. If I know that and I continue to participate in sarcasm around those people that can be potentially hurt, my behavior can become outright sinful. I can cause them to stumble. I can cause them to not just misunderstand um, me, but misunderstand God. Similarly, is, is drinking alcohol outlined in the Bible as a sin? No. Can you take it too far? Yes. Can drinking it around somebody who's not a believer cause them to stumble? Yes. Have conviction in the ordinary. We know Ephesians 6, right? Armor of God. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. And in addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That alone has me ready to run through a brick wall for Jesus. I'm like, I'm fired up. I am ready to go. But is that conviction? I think it can be. If you put on those things every day and you truly you know, focus on that, I think it can be, but I, I think the next part of this passage more clearly lays out what the conviction looks like. Pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Paul's writing this in chains. 
He's in a Roman prison. He's not in the Colosseum speaking before thousands of people like Billy Graham in a stadium. No. He's doing it in prison. He's doing it because he has life left in his body. That is conviction. So, will you let anything stop you from growing between the feasts and the, and the fasts? Courage and convictions do not magically appear in your life. It takes work, and not just one day of work either. Not just 15 minutes, like the magazines will tell you. The final key to living in the ordinary is consistency. During the fast, I found it increasingly easy to be quiet. This wasn't some snap moment in the middle where I was like, oh, I get it. Now I can be quiet. No, it took consistency day after day after day. When I get into my truck, my phone links up by Bluetooth. I, every single day, had to actively shut off the music. If I didn't, passivity would take over and it would play music without me having to do anything. I had to shut it off. I had to be consistent and never relent. Being consistent opened my eyes to many things, though. I'll give you three of them. Through consistency, I realized all the other places that I fill the silence. On day one, I truly thought that I knew all of them. I laid out the car, the workspace, and the shower. Those are three, like I knew, I, do, I, I listen and I fill the space uh, with music or, or podcasts or whatever in those three spaces. And by the end, I had 12 different spaces that I just fill the silence. So by the end of the fast, my experience had grown. It had deepened because I cut it out in all those other spaces that I realized I was just filling the space and squeezing God out. I did get to a point, like when I got to 12, I was like, do I just need to become a monk and go live in the hills somewhere? Uh, But clearly I'm here, so I made it through that struggle. Uh, But in the ordinary, in the fast, that's one thing. But in the ordinary, I plan to freely offer one day, one week, or one season to God other than myself. I know that on Wednesdays, I'm not going to listen to music in the car. I'm going to listen to it the rest of the time. I'm not going to continue fasting uh, because it'll lose its, its power. But that one day, I know I want to stay where I'm at. I want to keep growing closer to God, so I'm going to give Wednesdays in the car to him. Through consistency, I also grew hungry for God because fasting is a spiritual discipline that feeds our soul while we starve our body. Every time our mind signals, I want food or I want that thing that I'm fasting from, it should be a signal to pray. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, writes, When mid-morning comes and you want the food so badly that the thought of lunch becomes as sweet as summer vacation, you suddenly realize, oh, I forgot. I made a commitment. I can't have that pleasure because I'm fasting for lunch too. Then what are you going to do with all the, unha- when, with all the unhappiness inside? Formerly, you blocked it out with the hope of a tasty lunch. The hope of food gave you good feelings to balance out the bad ones. But now the balance is off and you must find another way to deal with it. The other way to deal with it is by spending time with God in prayer. In the ordinary... I won't be fasting daily or weekly, but when I reach for the radio or go to make a sandwich, I promise you I will be offering prayers of thanksgiving 
for what he has provided me, as well as prayer for clarity when trying to decipher between my needs and my wants. Third thing, taking that a step further, through consistency, I refined my relationship with God. Yes, I prayed every day. I read the Bible every day. I thought I was really, really close to God before the fast started. Yes, I thought my values, everything was perfectly in line, secured, all set. I was all in on the big, hairy prayer, the big, humble, audacious prayers. Then day 13 came, and I read that, the daily entry. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. I wonder how many of us pray about our enemies, but do we really pray for them? When I think enemy, I think of those who are opposed to God's ways and desires, those who actively work to do evil and harm in the world. They do not have to be people who directly oppose me, or cause me some form of direct pain. Enemy for me is defined by David in Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Then he finished. Personal admission, I pray about my enemies, but I do not often pray for them. That was like a whole ton of bricks dropped on my head because I was in the same spot. In the ordinary, I will continue to pray, but I will be praying for my enemies. Twitter would say, just cancel them. It's easier. Just, just cancel them. But cancel culture cancels forgiveness. Matthew 18 says, don't forgive seven times. Forgive 70 times seven. Don't cancel. I will also be soaking up his word like a cherished conversation with my grandfather. Not just reading his, God's word and moving on unchanged. And finally, I'll be focusing on the better habits that I've been forming while fasting in all areas of my life because consistency is key. Although I won't be fasting, practicing some of those ideals is key. Another way to practice consistency in the ordinary is by taking a Sabbath each week, a true day off for God. This concept isn't new to us, but the farther away that we get from, from the fast, the easier it is to just kind of ignore. The hectic pace of life the number of things that are competing for our attention, the enormity of the problems swirling around us, the stuff that just keeps coming in from all directions in a world that never seems to stop. How do we find balance and consistency in the craziness of life? Unfortunately, we often aren't looking for that balance. Instead, we think if we can hold on just a little bit longer, things will get better. We think if we work just a little bit harder, or a little faster, or a little more efficiently, we can convince ourselves that things will get better or they'll get easier if we can just outlast our problems. Most of us are under constant pressure and we don't take time that we need to recharge. One of the main reasons that we don't tend to pause and take a break is because we simply have too much to do. This is where faith needs to set in. If you trust God to do what he asks and to do what he promises, he will work everything out for your good. Observing a day of rest helps us to follow the example of our Creator, to remember there's more to life than work, and to exercise trust in God who provides. In all that I've said today, Satan is counting on us to fail. In relevant stock market terms, Satan's shorting us. He's working on borrowed time while we're here on earth. He'll sell us to the highest bidder, whatever sin or, or bad habit that keeps us away from God, he'll, he'll sell us to it. 
But then he hopes to buy us back at a lower price once we've been devalued by that sin or that habit, only to do it all over again. Fight back. Don't waste the ordinary. Our team's going to come up as we move into our time of communion. And for communion today, we're going to be reading one of Paul's last messages to Timothy. Paul and Timothy were super close. um, And Paul knew how difficult it was going to be for Timothy to carry on what he had started. So 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17 is what we're going to be reading. And I want you to really hone in while I read on both the, the message that Paul is delivering, the message of promise, the message of hope, through the muck and the mire. But I also want you to be thinking about that, that thing that you fasted from. How are you going to continue it? Obviously not by fasting the entire year. But what elements from the lesson that you learned while fasting can you carry on into the ordinary? But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose is in life. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others, and they themselves will be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know they are true, for you can know that you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught by the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they've given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Jesus laid down his life so you could do every good work. Jesus laid down his life. His body was crushed so that you could push that fulcrum for him to help you. He wants to give you leverage over the problems and the issues and the struggles in your life. And he proved it by laying down his body. Let's take the bread together. Jesus' actions were permanent. They can't be taken back. He is the Savior. He did come. He did die. And that permanency can be found in in the same permanency as stained blood. I know that some of you are miracle workers as you get blood out of clothes, but I've had to throw away like three shirts because I get a little blood on it and I can't get the stain out. Spilled blood is permanent. It can't be taken back. It can't be, that blood that's spilt can't be put back in. Jesus didn't care because Jesus wanted that relationship with you to be personal and to be permanent. Let's take it together. God, we thank you for fasts and feasts, 
for, for bringing us closer to you and for giving us the opportunity to know the richness of a relationship with you. I pray as we enter into the ordinary, that the things we learned from the fast and the feast would not be lost on us, that we wouldn't leave you in this time, that we would take you day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, into the ordinary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, well, we thank you so much for joining us today, whether it was in person because you fought the snow or online because you're stuck at home. Um, good luck digging yourselves out. If you have a neighbor who you know struggles to push a shovel or they don't have a snowblower, help them out today, okay? Uh, we also want to know how you feast today. So if you would, 815-290-9595. That's the, it's the church number. It's on the website, 815-290-9595. Let us know how you're breaking your, your fast with your feast. We want to see uh, all the great things that you guys get to do today. Have an amazing week, and we'll see you next Sunday.